is supported by Filling the Well, a new podcast from Arts Midwest created to nourish, provoke, and inspire artists and arts leaders. In this five-part series, hear from creative changemakers as they share their takes on how to shift power dynamics, avoid burnout, build authentic community, share resources, and advocate for support. With each episode, you'll find links to explore these ideas further and act in your community. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or check out artsmidwest.org slash fillingthewell. Welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. Hey, podcast listeners, it's Rhea Wong with you once again with Nonprofit Lowdown. Today, my guest is Andrea Espinola Wilson, who is the Partner and National Nonprofit and Education Practice Co-Leader at BDO. And we are going to talk about the state of nonprofits in 2022. So this is going to be a good one. Welcome, Andrea. Thank you, Rhea. Glad to be here. So before we jump into this report that you all put together, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background in nonprofits. That's a big question, actually. I think I didn't start kind of knowing I wanted to be in the sector. I'm first generation and first woman in my family to go to college, actually. So my parents did not raise somebody that they really thought they wanted to join the nonprofit sector, to say the least. But after undergrad, I started in accounting in one of the large accounting firms and left to join the Peace Corps, which is probably a fairly unusual career path and really found my passion for the sector. And I really felt at home in finding a place where kids like me, like growing up the way I did, and where it was really the mission of organizations to really make sure that kids like me had a future like I do today. And so now what I do is really help enable those types of organizations to have a sustainable financial future so that they can enable their beneficiaries. That is beautiful, Andrea. What did you do your Peace Corps? So I was in Moldova, which obviously Ukraine is big in the news. So it's just south of Ukraine. Interesting. The only thing I know about Moldova is that they rank very low on the happiness scale, which is too bad. (laughs) Well, I will tell you, Moldovans are beautiful, beautiful people. A little bit, it's cold there. And so they're kind of tough to get to know. But once you sort of get to know Moldovans, they never let you go. So I've been married for 16 years. My Moldovan host family actually came to my wedding I'm still in touch with them. So they literally never let you go, but you're in their hearts. So really beautiful, beautiful people, really great culture. Once you get to know it, love it. Lovely. Moldova, everyone put it on the list. (laughs) Okay. So let's get to the heart of the matter. We originally started talking because BDO, the company that you work for, did a benchmarking survey about the state of nonprofits. Obviously we are living through some unprecedented times, 2020, 2021, now 2022, is unlike anything that we've ever seen. And so I'm wondering, can you walk us through some of the key highlights of the study that you published? Yeah, I think obviously there's a lot. It's a very rich body of work and it's our fifth annual benchmarking survey. I think this year was a standout for many reasons. Primarily, I think we saw interesting results in a few key areas, one of which is the sustainability of the sector in terms of financial reserves. 
in previous reports in the previous years, we saw the plurality of organizations only had 28% of organizations had four months or fewer of reserves on hand. Now we see that number jump up to 38% of organizations had 12 months or more of financial reserves on hand. So we see that that financial reserve number is a really significant measure of really how strong an organization can endure the shocks of financial stress, if you will. Another one that I see is that 69% of organizations utilized some type of COVID relief money. So they're utilizing the number one of those is the PPP funding that was available. So we see that organizations are seeking some type of relief funding, which was, I think that's a good thing within that time period. 60% of organizations were thinking about accelerating technology. So I think there's three of them. There's some other ones that I think that we'll probably get into discussion today. But I would say in terms of what's going on in the sector, those are three pretty significant findings from this year. Yeah, I was really struck when I read the report about the financial reserve number, because I think we have this assumption that in tough times, people will pull back on giving. And in fact, the opposite has proven to be true. And I think we've seen this again, like the 2008-2009 crisis, post 9-11, people step up when there's crisis. I'm wondering if, first of all, does the data bear that out? And secondly, do you think it will be sustained over time? Yeah, I think the the data does bear that out. I think when the pandemic first hit, let's be frank, it was a little wobbly and there was a tremendous amount of uncertainty and there was especially uncertainty around charitable giving. Those individuals with the most flexibility in their income had uncertainty. The stock market was uncertain, jobs were uncertain. And so we didn't really understand what was going to happen in the charitable giving. As things normalized, we actually saw that giving actually accelerated and people gave, especially to those organizations that were dramatically impacted in terms of their programs, say arts organizations who had to close down because they could not provide their services during the pandemic. I think what's going to be interesting is do we see donor fatigue? We're now into year three. And I want to understand a little bit more about the donor community. And at some point, do they say, come on, organizations, you have to sort of figure this out. Is enough enough? And you're going to understand what it's going to take to get yourself through this hurdle and not just rely on these large contributions. So question for you. I'm wondering, did you happen to notice an uptick in a certain type of organization? Like I know you mentioned the arts, but I know a lot of us were concerned about basic services, people getting fed, people getting health care. And then certainly post George Floyd's murder, yeah. a lot around Black-led nonprofits. I'm wondering, did you see an uptick in philanthropic dollars to those organizations specifically, or was it just sort of across the board? So Every single sector or subsector has a story to tell. So the health and human service organizations obviously had an uptick because those were in most need of services. So either because there was private dollars funding them, either private philanthropy or government, those organizations saw a tremendous increase in funding because just basic service and basic needs, those organizations were at the front lines of the pandemic and still continue to be 
to this day. Obviously, with George Floyd and the much-needed attention that Black Lives Matters and social justice issues brought to all of those issues, private philanthropy has actually set out many campaigns to really support many organizations that bring those issues to the forefront of society. And we're seeing that many foundations actually established specific campaigns and programs to support organizations that support such issues, as well as organizations that support such issues. So we're really seeing across each subsector, there is a story to tell, and we could probably have a discussion or a podcast about each one and everything that's gone on. But definitely how this progresses over time is going to be very, very interesting. Well, and something that occurs to me too is even though the pandemic was very difficult for certain sectors of society, it was also very good for other sectors. I think a lot of wealthy people got wealthier. Like they were able to take advantage of a booming stock market, a lot of free money, a lot of like government money flowing through the treasury. So I'm just curious, obviously you don't have a crystal ball, but do you think that we will see increased levels of giving that will sustain over time? Or do you think this is just sort of a blip on the radar? No, I think it's going to be interesting. We have yet to see what's going to happen in Congress, truly happen. The largest funding really still comes from the U.S. government, and the biggest changes are that 69% that came from COVID relief. In terms of the charitable giving, and some of that comes from taxes, but when you survey some of those individuals, they don't actually indicate that tax saving is a bleeding cause for their charitable giving. It's a nice kind of side effect. I do think we're going to see it. I think that the social climate has changed, that individuals with wealth see that it is their responsibility and their social imperative to give. I don't think that that has ended or will end with the end of the pandemic. I think that we'll continue to see that. What I'm curious about is how the issues will evolve. But my personal opinion, I don't think we'll see that change. Yeah. And I just want to highlight for folks, if you look at the statistics out of Philanthropy USA, that in general, the bulk of philanthropic dollars are given by individuals, not by foundations and not by corporations, leaving U.S. government aside for a second. And so to me, that is why it's so crucial to develop an individual gift campaign and revenue source because it's about the people. Though we have seen an increase in foundation giving, but we actually haven't seen the corporate giving needle move very much. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about that. That's actually a really interesting point. I think we might. I'm sure you've heard that ESG is a really large imperative for many corporations. And I'm wondering as ESG, that social component of ESG becomes a larger component and a requirement, very frankly, for corporations. If we see that social and corporate social responsibility segment of that social piece of it have a mainstay within many more corporations, I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball either, but I do think that we may see it. It may be It'll be a force for good as we see organizations really pony up on their corporate philanthropy. And I think there has been a change in corporations. I do a lot of reading conscious capitalism and the need for organizations, even in the for-profit sector, to have a better purpose 
in the world. I do think that there is some movement that is greater than just the social sector to really have a positive influence. I don't think it's going to be a quick shift. My hope is that it is a shift around just the bottom line that matters. It is the impact that matters that you have on society. Yeah. And I think that the great resignation probably has something to do with it. I think the younger generation is certainly looking to be part of companies that have some kind of social good, social purpose. And so people will vote with their feet and they'll be able to attract the talent that they want to attract if they have the right kind of values. Wonderful point. (laughs) But let's switch gears a little bit. Again, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but Given the fact that BDO has done this for the last five years, any predictions that you have for 2022 for the nonprofit sector? I think we continue to see agility. One of the things that I've always admired about the sector and what's drawn me to the sector for 20 years is the ability of the sector to be problem solvers. And I think that we continue to see that. But I think it's problem solvers that not just in the sense that we solve problems for the world, which I think will always be the hallmark of the nonprofit sector, because we solve problems that there's not a market to solve. We solve problems that is for the betterment of all society. That's what we do. But I think we will also find it to be a time when we solve problems that also look internally. Now that organizations have the internal economics and sustainability measures, access to some capital, an interest to develop some better financial systems, technology. My hope is that we see that they're also internally resilient and take the time to actually invest in themselves like they've always invested in others. Yeah, that's such a powerful point. I can't say enough about investment in capacity and infrastructure because I think we have this idea of like basically pulling it all together with like bubble gum. And, <laughs> but if you're not investing in your CRM system, in paying your staff, in marketing, then you're not going to reap the benefits further down the road for sure. Okay, last question before we get to questions from the audience. What do you think are ways that nonprofits can mitigate risk in 22? And what are some opportunities that you see? Well, that is a big question. I think that there is a lot of risks out there. And keep in mind that I obviously have a perspective coming from a financial firm. So my absence of identifying a risk doesn't mean that I don't think it's a risk. Or I think any organization, their number one risk is reputational. So I think it's obviously understanding who you do business with and who you work with and understanding those relationships and what it means is first and foremost that reputational risk. And I'm not sure I'm ordering this in any sort of priority, but cybersecurity is a very significant risk. And I don't think many organizations understand how porous and how at risk they are because I don't know that they understand how many people interact with their systems. They have donors, they have constituents, they have board members, they have beneficiaries, and everybody who interacts with your system is a vulnerability and staff. Anybody who clicks a button is a vulnerability. And I think that is a really, really substantial risk. And unfortunately, we've had clients and people we work with that have lost 
very substantially to these very sophisticated schemes and there's nothing that can be done. You may have insurance, insurance may not cover it. So I would put cybersecurity as a pretty substantial risk. I'd also put on your risk, your board and lack of board sophistication on there. I think traditionally a lot of the boards I've seen within the, my clients is they have a passion for your organization and the mission, but do they have the sophistication that can really support management? And what I mean by that is the risks associated with running an organization have changed. Like we just talked about cybersecurity. Can they augment the risks and the knowledge that management needs to really support and advise management in the risks that is really necessary? Because they're all just on the programmatic side and they're not there to help in the financial of the investment, the cyber, the technology, and the programmatic, just to name a few. Are they really supporting the institution and fundraising, you know, and all these other pieces? And so I'm just naming a few, but that's kind of what comes off the top of my head right now. Yeah. And to add to that, I would actually put HR risk because I think Mm -hmm. increasingly we're seeing, not to put this at the feet of the millennials and the Gen Z, but I do think we're seeing a much more activist employee base. And I think as management, we have to think ahead and plan for the worst case scenario of disgruntled employees or lawsuits or anything that would put us at risk. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so now that we exhausted that pressing topic, let's talk about some opportunities that you see for nonprofits in 2022 and further ahead, because I do think the world is changing really quickly. And I want the listeners here to think about how they can position themselves to take advantage of opportunities. That's great. I think it's a beautiful question. First and foremost, I think that in everything that we've talked about is an opportunity. The fact that there is an appetite to give means there's an appetite to receive. One of the other findings in our report is that I think it was like over 40% of the organizations reported that they've changed some sort of programming, which means that there's an opportunity there to reinvent and to reinvest. So how do you, in the sort of old saying, build a better mousetrap? so to speak, and how do you continually solve that problem that needs to be solved in society? For me, that's always been like the amazing thing about the sector is just how do you solve that problem that society needs? How do you figure that out? How do you build that network? How do you collaborate? How do you work with other organizations that are similarly dedicated and similarly collaborative? That's where I think that the true opportunity is in the sector I think under the current administration, there is going to be continued funding in a fairly unprecedented way. And the reason why I keep mentioning the federal side is only because I think the amount of funding that's going to be coming from the federal government is going to be substantial. And for organizations to really think very broadly in terms of their programs generally they should think about it in terms of a broad strategy and to really just take this opportunity to think about their communities and how they can serve. 
Yeah. And I would also add to that, I think technology offers a huge opportunity and I'm a big futurist pro-tech person. I think we do yep. need to think about embracing technologies like cryptocurrency donations, like NFTs, like mm-hmm. how we might deliver our programs using a tech platform or tech delivery systems, because let's just put it this way. Technology is not going anywhere and it's only going to move faster. Yep. I think I have to have someone on here who can talk about Web3, because I think Web3 is the next stage of the internet, the metaverse. And I think the nonprofits that are really going to do well are the ones that embrace the future. And I think sometimes in the nonprofit, we're slow to innovate, we're slow to change our practices. So at the same time that we're agile, I also think we can be a little bit hesitant about leaning into the new, the innovative, the unknown. I think there are lots of reasons for that. Part of it is the funding mechanisms kind of dissuade innovation, dissuade failure and failing forward. But I think the really smart nonprofits are going to be able to embrace and use it strategically. Yeah. Okay. Jonathan has a question here. Let me ask Jonathan's question. The question is, with the way things are going into the economy, what is your recommendation slash assessment on the amount of giving? Inflation is taking a historic toll, so I would think that the amount of philanthropic giving will decrease. I also see social service programs taking a hit the most, specifically in direct service. What are your thoughts? That is a big question, and I wish I was an economist to answer it. I think the most large dollar spending are also are happening with people with the largest amount of income. Those are also the individuals who inflation affects the least. So I'm not sure that the amount of giving that they will provide will actually decrease. Now, the question I have is whether or not the impact of that giving, will it have the same impact overall on the organization? How will inflation affect the organization that's receiving it? And will giving really kind of keep up with inflation? I don't know if I'm answering the question with a question. Probably, I think I am. But I think that people will continue to give. I think they'll probably maybe give a little bit more considering inflation. I don't know that they'll give as much as the inflationary adjustment. Inflation is at an astronomical level. We haven't seen this high of inflation in a long time. And so my concern is that it is going to be an issue for organizations. I have a concern as well for social service programs. There's a number of reasons why those programs run at a very lean rate, very technical reasons that I don't want to get into, but I think they will be the hardest. Some of those just going to go into a couple of the reasons. They're dealing with personnel shortages in particular. The labor shortages are hit equally in all parts of the economy, but in social service organizations, individuals are in some ways the community health workers, many cases, hourly wage earners, and they're kind of more transient in some nature, in in some areas. So they're really impacted and more to go between Amazon driver to being a community health worker, it's more transient. And I think that's going to be a harder, more transition that's going to happen. So I think that your question is an apt one. I think only time will tell what's going to happen. This part of the sector is also probably the most well-funded at the time because of COVID. So I don't think we'll see an insolvency or an issue where we think that it's not going to be sustainable. 
the federal funding and the state funding that's coming into this sector is probably the most robust it's ever been in history. So there's a lot of factors going on, but I think ultimately it will be okay. But I do think that there's a lot of HR issues kind of moving around as well. I don't know, Rhea, I probably threw a lot out there at the same time. Yeah, no, there is a lot going on. It's a very complex time. The only thing I would add, Jonathan, is I think as a hedge against donor attrition, this to to the earlier point is a great time to invest in your development and marketing because if you can hold on to the donors that you got at the beginning, you can smooth out some of that volatility. And generally, especially if you have a major gift program, to your point, the wealthy individuals are the ones for whom inflation is not going to be as impactful, particularly with their philanthropic giving. So again, this is like the soapbox that I will stand on the hill, I will die on, but like (laughs) you have to, have to, have to take care of your donors. Think about donor loyalty. Think about the ways in which you're stewarding people so that they keep coming back because guess what? It's so much easier to raise money from people who have already given to you than new people. Fix the leaky bucket problem and you're 50% of the way there. A great question, Jonathan. So As we're wrapping up, any last thoughts for folks listening and thinking about planning for 2022 to 2025? Again, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but anything that you might add to help us think about planning for the future? I think the big piece that I would have people consider, and I think we touched on it, and you definitely did, Ria, is the technology piece. I think it's uncertain going back to the PPP funds and whatnot. People have this funding. It's uncertain it's not going to continue this sort of at one time. Think about how you're going to use that funds if you haven't already. It's a great use of that funding to make sure that you're kind of making your organization stronger and more sustainable. When the pandemic started, it was really a story of the haves and the haves not from a technology perspective. And thinking about technology strategy rather than just a very sliver of your universe I think is a really important way to think about it because there's many things within technology. There's your ERP and donor management. There's the accounting side. There's document retention. There's all kinds of things and thinking about how it all works together. The investment in technology is a very important sort of strategic endeavor that is worthwhile of your time and thought and don't rush it because you oftentimes won't get this sort of reprieve to go through that exercise again. All right. I totally lied. I actually do have one last question. So I'm wondering if you could speak at all to the contraction of the sector, because I think what we also saw was a lot of organizations for the first time thinking about mergers and acquisitions and partnerships. And I'm just wondering, is that something that you've observed? And if so, do you see that as a continuing trend? I thought we would actually see more of it than we did. I think we see partnerships when they're sort of opportunistically and when they're strategic. When the pandemic first started and we had some organizations just by virtue of lack of financial reserves and their programmatic kind of who they are, what they do, there was some of it, like you mentioned. And so there was some necessity, people closing shop and whatnot. But there was actually less of it than I would imagine. And I think the reason for that is when people start an organization, they do so because they have a point of view and they believe very deeply 
in the mission of that organization and not just the mission, but the way that they solve that problem. And so to decide to merge with another organization, to decide to even collaborate, it's hard to not feel loss. It's not a business decision. And so in some ways, I'm not surprised that we don't see more because it's not a business decision. It's not a head-driven decision. It's a heart-driven decision. So I think now that we see that the financial side of organizations are much more resilient, I don't think we actually see more of it. That's just my prediction. Yeah. It's such an interesting point because in this sector, we're so emotionally driven, even when it makes sense perhaps to consider a merger or an acquisition. I think we think of it as an intellectual exercise, but really underneath it is like, to your point, you don't start a nonprofit because it makes intellectual sense. You start it because you're emotionally connected to something. Yeah. Such an interesting point, particularly too with contributions. Like I talk about this all the time, which is people give donations because they're emotionally moved and they use the data to back up the decision that they made with their heart. Exactly. And so we're like dealing with two different parts of the body here. Yes. They were always organ donors. (laughs) Andrea, you talked about having a board that is sophisticated. I could not agree with you more because I do think that's a very broad brush, but in many cases I've seen we underutilize our board or we just like get people on because they're a warm body or we ask people on the board because they're friends and family. How might you recommend that people think about recruiting a board through the lens of risk mitigation and protecting for the future? I think that's a really important question. I think it takes a management team to understand and really think heavily on their own blind spots. And that takes courage first and foremost, and saying, okay, I need a board that has a level of sophistication in what areas and put them out there. And then finding people who have not just the current skill set in those areas, but have an interest to keep themselves updated in those areas, especially in places and areas that are evolving all the time. Because you don't want to have like in some technology, that's like all the time. And so that's my recommendation is think through what that is and then do some due diligence and talk to people. And and people are very generous. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Ask. People are kind. Most people just want to be asked for help. And I think you'll find that you'll kind of things will be connected for you along the way. And to your earlier point about investing in self, I think often if you're an executive director, especially if you're a founder, you're running on passion. But the truth is to be a leader takes investment. So that's when you should be thinking about investing in executive coaching, because I think sometimes we don't know our own blind spots and it's very easy to to look at your board or an advisor and be like, well, they don't get it. So I'm just going to ignore the very good advice that I might be getting because they don't quote unquote get it. But I think part of it is your lack of security as a leader to actually, to your point, to be courageous about knowing what you don't know. Yeah. So I guess last words, invest in yourselves, invest in your staff, invest in your infrastructure for the long term. Yep, absolutely. So 
Andrea, I'm going to make sure that everyone gets the report. I'll make sure to put it in the show notes. I'll put it in the chat here for folks if you all want to read it, which you absolutely. Here's a question I've been asking people, which is sort of fun. If you had a billboard that you could metaphorically put out into the world to communicate something, what would be on that billboard? Wow, that's a question. I always, what would I want to tell my childhood self? I would say, be the you that you always dreamt you could be. Yeah, that's for me. That's every day. That's what I try to do. Wonderful. If folks wanted to connect with you, can we have them connect with you via LinkedIn? Where, where can we find you on LinkedIn? LinkedIn is perfect. My email phone number is on the video website. So you can find me there. And thank you Maria, for your time today. This has been a really fun chat. I'm really passionate about this sector. So this is always really enjoyable for me. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for the insights that you've offered. I hope that people take it to heart and take an opportunity to, as you say, take a step back and think about your blind spots because we all have them. And the more you're aware of what they are, the better you can plan for the future, which I hope is a prosperous one for everyone. So thank you so much. Thanks so much to everyone who joined. Have a great week.